Now we can assume in use of the Bible that God did his part when he communicated. And what remains of that communication then lies with us. We can have the help of the Holy Spirit, so it's not entirely on us, right? We have a promise of the Holy Spirit, but even the use of the Holy Spirit lies with us. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. Imparting knowledge from one person to another takes communication. This can seem like an easy task, but in reality, there are layers of complexity that make communication challenging. We experience this in our homes with those we live with, with friends and with co-workers. Even speaking the same language, we can easily have misunderstandings. Arriving at correct knowledge from God's communication to us in His Word has its challenges as well. Today, Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, talks about the nature of communication and the challenges of language, assumptions, and our own will. I have, as I said, a little bit of preliminary that I want to discuss today, and it's the difficulty of communication. So I wanted to start with 1 Corinthians 3.18. Paul said this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Sometimes when I read Paul, I'm tempted to quote from the Princess Bride, Truly you have a dizzying intellect. But the second verse, also Paul, to the same group of folks in the same letter, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. And I mentioned last week that this is a journey that I'm inviting us to take together. And Marlene brought up a really good point that I want to I make. It is not my intention to convince you of my point of view here. It's my intention to share clearly and communicate clearly what my point of view is so that you have the opportunity to consider that in light of the scriptures and preferably in the light of the Holy Spirit and determine if you think that I'm, uh, my view really does line up with the whole counsel of the scriptures. But these verses, I want you to take to heart. This is not just for me. I want you to approach these topics with humility, not assuming that you already know the answers to these questions. Now, there are certain things, and I want to say we don't have to go over everything every time again, right? There are certain things that we have settled. But I want to explain to you why it's possible that some of what you have as your current viewpoint might not be correct, okay? So language is a very effective means of communication, right? And with, imagine trying to communicate without it. Uh, would be a very difficult thing to do. It is, however, not without its difficulties, and that's what I want to talk about today. A conversation involves two parties, right? But it takes a speaker or a writer, if you're reading, like maybe reading from the Bible, reading from a book, and it takes a hearer or a reader. These are the two parties that are involved. 
And difficulties may arise if the two parties are not really synchronized with regard to language. So language is not perfect. And one of my favorite examples of this, I still remember this in sixth grade, and I don't know what my teacher's point was, but this is a joke my sixth grade teacher told. And so the joke goes something like this. This Mexican immigrant living in Texas had a horse, and he was selling this horse. Now this man's neighbor, uh, a you know, born and bred Texan, comes by, sees the sign, horse for sale, so he decides to take a look at the horse. And he's looking at the horse very closely, and the, the Mexican immigrant says to him, my friend, I need to tell you, this, look, this horse, he don't look so good. And the, and the Texan says, well, listen, I know my horses, and I'll be the judge of that. And he says, but sir, my friend, I need to tell you, this horse don't look so good. And he says, buddy, I've been around horses my entire life. And I'm looking at this horse right now, and he looks pretty good to me. And in fact, I'll take him at your asking price. He says, okay. So they make the exchange. And it wasn't more than a couple of days later, and that Texan showed up at his neighbor's house, and he says, hey, what are you trying to pull? That horse is blind. He said, but sir, I tell you, that horse don't look so good. <laughs> well, this is an example of course, of somebody using language differently, and maybe not even correctly, but it's an example of how two people think they're communicating, or at least the Texan thought they were communicating, because he knew what these words meant. But he didn't know what the speaker meant by the words that he was using. And this is an important part. There are other factors than just you know, poor use of language. And that's really what I want to talk about today here. So let's take a look at these factors. I want to talk about the contract of communication, okay? So communication is a joint effort. It takes a contract. And it's a contract between two parties. Remember, communication takes at least two parties. And the two parties require good faith in this contract, okay? And so it requires effort, it's a joint effort, and it requires good faith on the part of both parties. Now, a good communicator, of course, will consider his audience. He'll try to make sure to use language that both understand, at times defining the words that are being used in order to make sure that they're being communicated properly. But it still doesn't solve the problem of communication because much of the problem lies with the hearer. And so what happens here is I want you to understand that there's, there's two different sides. And these words we tend to use and maybe don't even think about exactly what they, they mean, but when a speaker speaks or writes, there are certain implications. There are certain things that are in the mind of the person who is communicating. And these things are sometimes explicitly stated and sometimes implied. But that's the intention of the speaker that is the implication. So communication, the communicator intends what he is implying, okay? But because you're using words that you think everybody understands, maybe even defining them, does not necessarily solve the problem of communication because much of the problem lies with the hearer. The recipient adds inference, okay, or inference. 
But Jesus, by the way, kept saying many times, he said, what? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying that there is some responsibility on the hearer in communication. And there's inference that is added by the recipient. Now we can assume in use of the Bible that God did his part when he communicated. And what remains of that communication then lies with us. We can have the help of the Holy Spirit, so it's not entirely on us, right? We have a promise of the Holy Spirit, but even the use of the Holy Spirit lies with us. So there's work to be done even before the Holy Spirit is allowed to do his work. So I'm going to tear into a little bit what we use to add inference. And I want you to evaluate as we go through these topics where you got the things that you infer from the scriptures. So the, to infer means to deduce or conclude meaning in something. So when I use a word in a certain context, you will deduce and infer what I mean by the use of that. And I'll use some examples of that and how culture and some of these other areas that I'm going to go through actually influence that. So when a speaker speaks or an author writes, he's intending to suggest something. There's always implications that go along with that suggestion that are not always explicitly stated. The implication begins with and belongs to the communicator. Okay? When we read or then we hear that something, and of course, assuming it's in our language, we hear something in our language, we begin to infer or conclude or deduce certain meaning to what's being said. And the inference is ours. It may be in line with what was intended. Implication, by the way, means to be strongly suggested. Okay? So the implication comes from the communicator. The inference comes from the receiver of that communication. All right? So what we infer may not be what was implied by the speaker. So let's look at where some inferences come from. So a significant factor um, in both implications and inferences is our culture. Now, what is our culture? We talked a little bit about that when we were talking about church, but the behaviors, beliefs, characteristics of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. You could say a particular group. You know, churches have culture as well. Church denominations have cultures. Church non-denominations that are denominations but don't call themselves denominations have cultures. <laughs> and you can identify those cultures with certain things. I won't spend the time telling about my story when I was introduced to the culture of Plymouth Brethren. That was very funny. We were using words. There was a man, I better tell it now. Shortly after our marriage, we were in Wichita, and we went to church with Chris and Becky. And we went to this church, and afterwards, we were having potluck dinner, and uh, a man sat down and was being friendly and asking questions. And he was asking questions that had certain implications that I was not understanding. And so he asked, where do you fellowship? And I don't remember what my response was, and you know, Alexandria. And 
he was using certain code words like assembly and things like that that did not have the same meaning to me. I was trying to explain to him that we went to church in a house church, that we met in a home in Alexandria, but he was trying to find out, I didn't know this, he was trying to find out whether the group that I was part of was a sanctioned group of the Plymouth Brethren who cannot sanction groups because they don't believe in a denomination. So it's sort of an implied thought. And the language that he was using made perfect sense to me, but my responses to him made absolutely no sense because I wasn't participating in the implications whatsoever. I was inferring what I understood him to be meaning. We, we talked like this. I mean, he finally gave up. Naomi knew what was going on. I had no idea. And, and she informed me later of just how frustrating it must have been for this poor man trying to ascertain whether or not I was part of a sanctioned group. But anyway, I'll give you an example of how we, in our culture, we infer something and we can miss what was intended um, within the culture that was being spoken. And an example of that is Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 through 30. Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Okay, so he used the word yoke twice, right? And everybody knows what a yoke is? Does everybody know what a yoke is? The yellow part of an egg? Uh, yeah, if you're Norwegian or Swedish, it's, it's, it's a funny story. It's quite a good yoke. So we know in our culture, although it's sort of distant in our memory, about these wooden beams that they put across animals, beasts of burden, things that pull carts and wagons and things like that. And sometimes they go across, not always, sometimes they go in the, at the chest and so forth. There's different types of yokes. But we're aware of these yokes, and so we understand the terminology that Jesus is using, and we understand the word picture here. It, we get this word picture, right? And he uses words that correspond to this yoke. My burden is light, right? And so he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we get part of the word picture that he has here, but the part that we miss is what was obvious to his hearers. And that is, there was a, a use of the term yoke that was used back then that meant something specific. Does anybody else know how that term was used that we don't use it in that way today? Okay, the yoke was when a student would sit under a teacher. So we missed this half on the play on words that Jesus was using. He was using yoke, but then he was referring back to the original meaning of that with his other word picture because he knew that everybody that was listening to him was tracking with the fact that he was saying, I am coming with a method of teaching, a, a method of thinking, a system in my teaching that if you sit under my teaching, then your burden will be light or my burden will be light. And he understood that the yoke that the people were sitting under with the scribes and Pharisees in his day, they knew exactly what it meant. They called it a yoke. They would say, what rabbi's yoke 
do you have or do you take? They actually referred to it that way. And so Jesus was speaking directly in their culture in a way that we often miss. And so there was this implication that he had that we miss and we don't infer it, even though it might have been intended. Now, an example of how people actually did not miss that, if you sat under a certain rabbi, you were said to take on his yoke. Here's what, here's what we find in, anybody remember what people said at the end of Matthew 7? Okay, this is the Sermon on the Mount. After the Sermon on the Mount, the people were dumbfounded. Do you remember what they said? Here's what it says. The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The point that we miss in that is that Jesus was saying, I say to you. That's not what the scribes and Pharisees said in their day. They said, it is written. They said, so-and-so said, I sit under so-and-so's yoke and he tells us this. But nobody in that day was putting forward a different yoke. But Jesus, I'm giving, I'm putting forward a different yoke here. And if you are under my yoke, if you come under my yoke, you will find that my burden is light. You will find me to be gentle and humble of heart. This was made perfect sense to them. And they had been accustomed to hearing people say, it is written, or somebody in the, the ancients said, they were not used to hearing somebody say, I tell you. In fact, Jesus, how many times did he say, it is written, but I say. It is written, but I tell you. It is written, but it is true. Truly, I say to you. This is something that they, they picked up on it. They're like, man, this is something different. We miss it altogether because we weren't in that culture. Culture has a way of affecting our inference in what we're hearing. This is really important because many times as we start going through some of these different ideas and doctrines, we'll see our culture in them and we'll find that it doesn't work in other cultures. It's so culturally specific that it won't even work worldwide. If we get stuck in our culture, something has to pull us out of our own rut because we're now the speaker. We're, the, we're not the ones actually getting what the speaker is saying. We're reinterpreting it to be our own thing or the thing within our culture. And that is exactly what I, I, I feel completely not up to but that I want to do. I feel like even in this little group right here, we have our own little culture. And I've, I have felt the effect of that culture in a way that's it, it, in very good ways and also some ways that I think need some correction. And so I want to attempt that if I you know, can be so bold. Besides culture, we have inference from preconceived notions. All right, so make sure that we're communicating to people. Everybody know what a preconceived notion is? Okay, it's an assumption about something. And that assumption is, of, is formed prior to getting all the information. Okay, I do that a lot in my relationship with Naomi. My counselor calls it forecasting. I, I anticipate what's going to happen before it happens. 
And I come into a situation already mad because she's not going to be reasonable. And nothing's happened yet. Okay? As my preconceived notion in that situation. So this is a factor that affects implications and inferences. Okay? I spoke with, at Karis, Karis asked me to come and speak at her church um, at, with the youth, and, and, and she said, okay, I got to warn you, Dad, these people um, in, in the youth group don't have a lot of biblical knowledge and instruction, so you're going to have to, you know, spell it out. So I was prepared to do that. I made copious notes on exactly how I wanted to do that. And in my, my spelling it out, I'd get this blank look, and I'd realize, oh, I had this preconceived notion that about this that everybody knows that they didn't know, even that. And so I'd, I have to go back, you know, two steps back from there just to be able to communicate. But it works on the other side as well. You think you're hearing what somebody is saying. And, I, and I've had this experience in business many, many times. Adele is working with me, and we're working on the implementation methodology. And I present it to consultants that have been doing consulting for a while. And I say, okay, our methodology is role-based and process-centric. And they go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, okay, I got it. Me too. I've been doing it that way for years. And then when we go on a project, it's obvious they had no idea what I was talking about. They heard the words. And I had, I had a, a man that worked for me, a programmer, and I was trying to explain to him some design that he was going to work on. And he said, I hear the words, and I know the words you're using, but I have no idea what you're saying. He recognized that he had preconceived notions about what these words meant, but it was obvious to him that they didn't mean the same to him that they were meaning to me. An example of this can be found in Luke 24. So now this is where the account of the disciples after Jesus was raised from the dead, they were going to Emmaus. You remember that? There's these disciples that were headed to, to Emmaus. They encountered Jesus after he had risen, but they didn't recognize him. Okay, so you remember that's setting up the story. He asked them what they were talking about. And they asked him, you know, didn't you know what just happened? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that has no clue what just happened? Um, he said, what things? <laughs> You're the only one who doesn't know about these things, is what they said. And he goes, what things? And they said, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And here's the point. But we were hoping that it was who was going to redeem Israel. How did they miss it? You, if you go back, it didn't look the way they thought it was going to look. They came into the situation of redemption with a preconceived notion. They thought they knew what it meant. They thought they knew what it meant. What's amazing, if you read through the Gospels, particularly John, that's amazing to me. Jesus says, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I'll be crucified. And then in three days, I'll rise again from the grave. And then three days after he's been put in the grave, the women go down and they go, 
Where's the body? They come back and tell the disciples, and the disciples go, oh, what could have happened to that body? Where, where did they miss it? I mean, if you read through, it's just amazing to me how many times he told them. But see, I have the perspective of not the, having the preconceived notions that they came into the words with. So they had a preconceived notion about what this redemption meant and how it would come about. This made them and others just like them, like Thomas, for example. Remember Thomas? I'm not going to believe he's risen from the dead until I touch you know, the, his side and his hands. Thomas was there when Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. How many times? It made these people miss the very specific words Jesus told them about his death and resurrection. So we have inferences from misconceptions. What are misconceptions? Misconceptions are similar to preconceived notions, but these are insidious. They, they, they're sneaky. They hide. Okay? They're very, very difficult to avoid because neither party is aware of them. Okay? A misconception is a view or an opinion that is incorrect because it is based on faulty thinking. So it's reaching conclusions that don't go there logically, necessarily. It's, a, it's faulty thinking. It's not a preconceived notion, necessarily. Um, there's another that I, I really like to use, but who can tell me what apprehension means? Apprehension, it, it, does, have, it does mean to be nervous or it's a foreboding of evil or something like that, okay? But it also means to lay hold of something, to apprehend something. So when you have, when you have done that, you could say, I have a great apprehension of this truth. Kind of confusing, isn't it? One of the great ones that I wish that I could use, but I can't because it'll steer people in the wrong way, and I'm trying to be a good communicator, is misapprehension. I love that word. If you look that up in the dictionary, it means exactly what I really meant to say here, but I had to use misconception. Misapprehension. It, it is to understand something incorrectly. Okay, and to understand something incorrectly, you say, oh, I got, and you lay hold of it, and you grab it, and you run with that, and you say, this is my understanding of it, but it's not correct. Um, so this was the primary difficulty Jesus faced in his day, and, and I think still faces today. A great example can be found in his conversation with Nicodemus. You remember that one? Nicodemus came to him, and he said, I know that you are from God. You remember, that's the way Jesus started out. I, I mean, Nicodemus started out, I know you're from God. You must free from God, right? Now, Jesus said something really strange to him. He didn't say, why, thank you, or so why don't you follow me? He said, Nicodemus said, I can see, I can perceive that you are from God. By the way, do you remember... The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, remember how she started out? I perceive that you're from God. Now, Jesus didn't chew her out, but he kind of reprimanded Nicodemus. Because what, what did he say? You don't see the kingdom of God. You say you see I'm from God, but you see nothing unless you get, are born again. That's what he said. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, here's a misconception. 
wait a minute, I can't crawl back in my mother's womb. So what is it that we're talking about? How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And it's clear here that Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about, and Jesus understood that very well. And this is why he said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Do you not understand these things? The thing is, it wasn't preconceived notions that were in the way right now of Nicodemus. It was his inability to put two and two together. It wasn't just terminology here. It was his assumption that he had understood, that he knew what God expected of man, that he knew about what God was about. And Jesus basically pointed out to him that he really didn't know. He said, Nicodemus, your thinking is faulty, and it makes it very difficult for you to understand and believe spiritual concepts. He said, I told you earthly things, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You, you can't these things together. And by the way, Nicodemus was a good man. Nicodemus was trying. He saw that Jesus was something special, and he was trying to figure it out. He went to bat for Jesus when the other Pharisees were trying to kill him. Oh, and by the way, what did they tell him? Go to the scriptures. You remember that? It was Nicodemus they said that to. And what did they say? You'll see see there is no prophet that ever comes out of Galilee. They had a misconception and a preconceived notion in both places right there. All right, the last and most important one probably is the inference from our will. Culture, preconceived notions, misconceptions are the very reason why people can look at creation and conclude it happened by chance. But more importantly, and the largest factor is our will. Kierkegaard once said, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true The other is to refuse to believe what is true. I thought that was a profound statement. There are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. Now, more important than what Kierkegaard said, Jesus said, if anyone is willing the Father's will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Another place, John 8, that was John 7, 17, by the way, he said, why do you not understand what I'm saying? He's speaking to the Jews. By the way, if you read chapter 8 closely, Jesus spoke to the Jews who had believed in him. Jesus was speaking to the Jews that had believed in him, and he said to them, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. What was blocking their ability to hear his word? Their desires, the things they wanted to do. If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you're not of God. My point here is that we have culture. We have preconceived notions. We have misconceptions, numerous misconceptions flying around all around in our culture. 
that are standing in the way of our understanding. But we also have a desire to fulfill our own will. We'll argue our point sometimes even after we realize we're wrong. Have you ever done that? So sometimes our motivation is just to justify our own desires. Sometimes it's simply to support our preconceived notions. We have this preconceived notion. Sometimes it's just to prove our point. And so we get into these arguments and somebody says, I'll give you an example. When we first started going through the, the book Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard, he said, okay, here's the way man is made up and he has his little diagram. And I'm like, that don't square with my, what I think. I think this guy's wrong. I didn't listen to him because I had this preconceived notion, something that I had learned, something that I had adopted as my view, but at that point, my will was to prove that he was wrong. That was my intention, not to understand what he was saying or where he came up with that idea. And fortunately, as I went through scriptures like I tend to do when I'm trying to prove my point, I get all the stuff and I'm putting it all together and I realize that, you know what, my point doesn't stand very well. I'm not sure I'm seeing his point because I really wasn't listening to him, but I'm certainly seeing that my point doesn't have as much credibility as I thought it did. Fortunately, nobody was there with me when I was coming to that conclusion because I'd have fought him on it. Our will gets in the way. Dave has pointed out at times that the Humanist Manifesto is basically an admission. These people do not want there to be a God. They want to be free to do what they want to do. And so our will will get in the way of listening and hearing, and we add the inferences from our will. In all these cases, it is our will that is the impediment to understanding. It is our will that infers what isn't there, that misses the implications and satisfies itself with untruth and non-reality. And it's easy for us to say, look, they're doing that. But my point today, and I want to make, and I want to point back to this over and over and over again throughout my teaching on this series, is that we are doing this, not always out of evil motivation, not always because we're trying to justify our behavior or something like that, but how many times you hear something that contradicts what you believe the Bible says, and the very first thing that, that happens is, is an argument in your mind. The very first that, that you go to is that dismissal, contempt maybe even. Oh, what an idiot, you know? You're like the guy in Groundhog Day, Phil. You know, people are stupid, people are idiots. When in fact, maybe, we're guilty of what Paul is talking about when 1 Corinthians that we read. If any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. So to come to knowledge, we have to interpret our observations and experiences with proper understanding. And in order to do that, we must approach our experiences and our studies without preconceived notions, without faulty thinking, and without a personal agenda. It's very hard to do. But I'm, I'm challenging you to purpose in your heart to approach this without an agenda other than to do the will of God, other than to understand what is being communicated. 
So we're going to start with some assumptions. We're going to start with the assumption that the word of God in the Bible is reliable, is trustworthy, is something that we can go by. So don't just take my word for it. I've said that before, and I don't want to try to convince you of something, but I want you to set aside your preconceived notions, potentially faulty thinking, and your personal agenda, and go back with fresh eyes to the Bible and experience God in maybe a new way. So we need to be ready to set aside our culture, set aside our agenda, become humble like a child, and prepared to do the will of God. And then I think we stand a chance to gain knowledge. Thanks for listening in today. Our vision at TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.